Hey everyone, Reed here. As always, I want to give you a quick warning before we get going that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. Specifically, I want to let you know that this episode contains a brief discussion of suicide. If that's something you'd like to skip over, it'll be around the 15-minute mark of the episode. And please take care while listening. Monday, May 24th, 1982. It's about eight and a half months after the members of the Hole in the Wall gang were arrested in Las Vegas, following the burglary attempt you heard about a couple episodes ago. One of the members of the Hole in the Wall gang, Larry Newman, is appearing in U.S. District Court for a sentencing hearing, following a conviction in a separate case. He'd been found guilty of being an ex-felon, illegally in possession of a gun. Newman's attorneys have been arguing that their client should be released on bond, pending an appeal of his weapons conviction. Organized Crime Strike Force prosecutor Stan Hunterton is arguing that he should be denied bond because he's proven himself to be a menace to society and a threat to the community. And we knew that if Newman got out on bail after being convicted, he'd disappear, he'd kill people. He'd already killed three people that we knew of. I spent a couple hours with Stan, talking about his time working with the strike force. And in those couple hours, he repeatedly pointed out that taking down the mob in real life wasn't anything like it's portrayed in the movies, at least on the legal side of things. Being a strike force prosecutor meant spending long hours on painstaking, often tedious work. But as he recalls, this particular day in court was an exception. I've spent a lot of time saying this is real life, this is law enforcement, it's not the movies. This was like the movies. As Stan thinks back on this day, he tells me that things were not looking good for the prosecution, that it was seeming more and more likely that Larry Newman would be released on bond. And I just am sure we're gonna lose this and therefore lose Newman. But like any good courtroom drama, there's a twist. My good friend, uh, Charlie Parsons, who was the head of the Bureau's Organized Crime Squad, comes in and tugs on my sleeve at the podium. He says, put me on the witness stand. Uh, This is like a scene out of Perry Mason, right, where Paul Drake comes in at the last minute with the, the new information that will win the case, you know. I'll admit I had to look up some old Perry Mason clips on YouTube to catch Stan's reference, but it was spot on. I also learned that Perry Mason was a radio drama before it was made into a TV show, and we dug up some old clips. Well, now as Paul Drake steps up to Perry Mason, he says, Perry, yeah, we've been all set for more than an hour. I know. Think we ought to get started? crowd outside starting to get restless? Been restless for over half an hour. Give it a little more time then. Let's shake it up, let it change. And I have never in my life put a witness on the witness stand without knowing what they're going to (laughs) say. But I did in this case because I was very close with Charlie and I didn't have a choice. (laughs) Uh, Like, what was he going to do, make it worse? It's certainly evident that something has happened behind the scenes and... Well, join us tomorrow by all means, won't you? 
Once you got power, a lot of power, you don't care about the money no more. For the Las Vegas Review-Journal, in partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm Reed Redmond. He's one of you, you kill him. You're listening to Mobbed Up, a true story about money. You're not supposed to have a profile like that, especially in Vegas. Crime. You want to be very quiet so you can steal the money. He always said, if you pull a gun on somebody, you finish it, because if you don't, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I remember saying, what's going on here? And he's saying, they're trying to kill me. And I said, who's trying to kill you? And then he shut up. And the fight for control of Las Vegas. The FBI will continue to look to the future to use the latest and most sophisticated techniques to fight organized crime. The mob would have destroyed Las Vegas. It's only a question, not if, but when it would be destroyed. I was there every day with these fellas. I had no idea that there was uh, a mob. And he once told somebody, there's bodies out there in the desert, and there's more every day. But if there is one area where the word war is appropriate, it is in the fight against crime. When you grab them, you'll bring them to the desert. You're going to know where the hole has been dug. Part 9. Dirty Laundry. When we left off telling the story of Frank Collada's Hole in the Wall gang, the group had been caught red-handed, trying to break into a home furnishing store called Bertha's. Here's Mob Museum Vice President of Exhibits and Programs, Jeff Schumacher. And once these guys got inside the building, thereby validating the burglary, they swooped in and they arrested, you know, everybody involved, Collada and all of his accomplices. And um, they were, uh, you know, end up going to... Uh, prison, most uh, all of them. Las Vegas has a reputation of being a, a city that you can come to and do anything you want. This is Ernie DeVino, a former member of the Hole in the Wall gang, in an interview for a documentary published by Freebird Media titled Ernesto Ernie DeVino, The Last Stand-Up Guy. Well, you can do anything you want to an extent, but I'll tell you this, if you violate the law long enough, they are going to catch you and they are going to put you away. There's no escaping that in Las Vegas. When this interview was conducted about five years ago, Ernie had turned his life around and was working in jail ministry. In other words, he's not the same guy he was back in 1981 when he was arrested during the Bertha's burglary attempt. Once you become a target, you're through. They will stay on you until you either are in jail or you left town or you're dead. That's it. There's no in between. Following the Bertha's arrest, Frank and five other members of the Hole in the Wall gang were taken to the Clark County Jail, where police took a photo of all six standing side by side, not one of them looking at the camera. Frank would tell me that this was law enforcement's trophy, their prize for taking down the infamous Hole in the Wall gang, which police sources would tell the Review Journal had been responsible for around $1 million in local theft since 1979. The Metro, that's why we all turned our heads. We knew what it was. They put us in the bullpen, say, I'm take a camera, I'll take pictures. They all turn their head on them. You know. So that's the famous picture. Frank ended up bailing out his entire crew, 
and while awaiting trial, he had some other legal matters to sort out. Aside from Bertha's, Frank had racked up a handful of other charges, and in April of 1982, he went on trial for two counts of possession of stolen property. Here's true crime author Dennis Griffin, who would later co-author a biography about Frank. So in addition to all these other things, including Bertha's, that he's out on bail, he now has yet another charge. And in that charge, he ends up getting convicted. The judge refused to set an appeal bond, so Frank had to sit in jail while awaiting his sentencing hearing. And after he's sentenced in this case, Frank still has to face charges stemming from the attempted burglary at Bertha's. According to reporting from the Review Journal at the time, conviction in the Bertha's case would qualify Frank as a habitual criminal, meaning he very well might end up receiving a sentence of life in prison. So now he's back in the Clark County Jail because of that. And at that point, the uh, FBI called Frank's lawyer and says, we need, we need a meeting. Frank and his lawyer agree to meet with the FBI inside the Clark County Jail. They uh, all meet in the Clark County Jail facility. And the agents tell Frank and, and his lawyer, they said, uh, look, we're obligated under policy that if, if we know someone's life is in danger, regardless of how we feel about that individual, we have to uh, make them aware. So we just wanted to tell you, uh, Frank, that you're going to be killed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, have a nice weekend. It's a few weeks after Frank and his lawyer agree to meet with FBI agents that Strike Force prosecutor Stan Hunterton is in court arguing that Larry Newman should be denied an appeal bond. As you heard in the opening scene of this episode, Stan, more or less out of desperation, called the head of the FBI's organized crime squad, Charlie Parsons, to the stand, having absolutely no idea why Parsons had come into the courtroom at the last minute and asked to testify. So I put him on the stand and you know, had him identify himself for the record in court. And um, I said, Special Agent Parsons, do you have something of interest and importance to tell this court? Because I didn't know what the hell to ask him. <laughs> I didn't know why he was in the courtroom. I didn't know why I'd put him on the witness stand. So that was the best question I could come up with. It wasn't very good, but... It worked. Charlie had been up the night before with some other people, turning Frank Collada into a witness. You heard that right. Frank Collada. The same Frank Collada who has stated on this podcast that it was his religion not to become a rat. He'd been turned and he was about to put one of his own crew members behind bars. But he had enough information about Larry Newman in that first interview with Collada to uh, have uh, Newman put away with no bail pending appeal. So that was really my first, not contact with Collada, but uh, sort of working with him indirectly. Stan says that once Larry Newman realized this was all for real, that Frank Collada had actually flipped on him. He took off a gold wristwatch and handed it to his lawyer. He knew he was going away. When Frank had met with the FBI agents at the Clark County Jail, they'd told him that a contract had been taken out on his life. 
Frank talked about that meeting at a 2016 event held at the Ma Museum. The FBI visits me, and I tell them that there was a hit on me. And they said for 500000 so I make a joke out of it. I said, that's all? 500000 I thought it was worth more than that. So I said, well, this is my job to do this to, you know, fight and what's going on. I said, well, see you later. So he leaves. Frank's attorney told him not to worry, that the agents were probably lying. But after sitting with this information on his own for a bit, Frank decided to call up one of the agents, asking to meet again, but this time without his lawyer present. So he comes back. He sends the FBI guy back, and they got one of these old machines, you know, with the reels back and forth. They put the transcript in front of me, and he says, you recognize these boys? I say, yes, Tony and uh, Joe Lombardo. So Tony's talking about not mentioning my name, and he's going, yeah, I can't control the guy. The guy's a crazy man. He's doing things on his own. So Joe tells him, well, you know what you got to do then? You got to clean your dirty laundry. And the key phrase was from Lombardo to Tony is, take care of your dirty laundry. And mob parlance, Frank says, that meant kill this guy. You got my permission. You have permission from Chicago to take this guy out. That's quite a blow when you're, you know, the boss, the guy you've known since you were a kid, now is planning to kill you. And once you know that, you know, the whole loyalty idea, the whole notion that, you know, it's us against the police or it's us against society kind of goes out the window. Now you realize you're expendable. Let's think about this for a second. I'm not going to ask you to put yourself in Frank's shoes because most of us, myself very much included, have absolutely no way to relate to someone who spent most of their life steeped in mob culture. But here's someone who spent decades on the fringes of an organization that purports to value loyalty and brotherhood above all else. And he's hearing one of his oldest friends, his boss, Tony Spilatro, talk about whacking him, murdering him, comparing him to dirty laundry that needs to be taken care of. As you've probably come to learn throughout this series, Frank isn't shy about his past. Every time I sat down with him, he pretty much told me, ask me anything, don't be shy. Hell, the guy drove me to a house where he committed a murder the first time I met him. But this moment, when he's in jail, thinking about what it would be like to spend the rest of his life in prison, and then finding out that his childhood friend is talking about having him killed, it was incredibly painful for him. Sitting in his cell after the agents played the tape, Frank thought long and hard about committing suicide, taking his own life to avoid becoming a rat, sacrificing his reputation, and potentially putting his family in harm's way in the process. In the time I spent with him, this was the only thing Frank told me he didn't want to talk about. I don't want to go into too much details about that, okay? Sure. But I was uh, notified by the FBI that there was a contract out of my life. That's as far as I'm going to go. Okay. And so at this point, eventually you decide to, to flip and to work with the feds. Yeah. How do you reach that decision, and, and how difficult of a decision is that? You know, all my life I was ra- raised as a, you never become a, a rat. That's against our religion, let's say. But when I was notified or heard that Tony uh, lied about me, and said that I was the cause of all these problems in Vegas, that uh, it wasn't his fault, it was me. He was blaming me on everything. And the guy he was talking to was Joe Lombardo. Again, they call him as Joey the Clown. 
He was Tony's boss then. So Tony said to him, but then you know what you got to do? You got to clean your dirty laundry. You don't need to be a genius to figure that one out. After I heard that, I said, fuck this. And I, I told the FBI guy, I said, I don't know if I'm going to, I said, I don't know, I can't talk to you right now. And they locked me up in a cell. Then after oh, thinking about it the whole night, the next day I decided that, yeah, I was going to cooperate, but I wasn't going to talk about any murders. I was just going to talk about robberies. I thought I could get away with it. I didn't have the best intentions to help them out at the time. I figured I could lay, lie my way through this. It didn't work out that way. Because once they start telling you, if you get caught lying in court, they're going to try you for everything. Frank would end up confessing to over 200 burglaries and involvement in four murders, three of which you've heard about on this series. The murder of Jerry Listener, the alleged con man Frank shot to death in 1979, and the murders of Jimmy Moralia and Billy McCarthy, his friends back in Chicago that he says he set up for Tony. The fourth murder Frank would admit to was a car bombing in Chicago, which Frank says was a $10,000 contract murder for the outfit. So when finally, when I finally start confessing to the murders or talking about them, then I know I was locked in. I was locked in. And uh, I was offended and hurt at Tony because he betrayed me. And I know a lot of guys, more than you could ever have in your lifetime, that were friends of mine that were murdered by the Chicago outfit because they were naive and they thought, no, it ain't my time. They ain't going to kill me. I could name 39 of them right away. I says, that's it. That's when I decided it ain't going to work. We killed our own kind. And that's what happened. On May 20th, 1982, then-Review-Journal reporter Jane Ann Morrison wrote the following in an article published on the front page of the Review-Journal, under one of the most surprising and significant headlines in the history of organized crime. Collada to Sing Song of LV Mafia. Alleged mob figure Frank Collada is expected to provide information to lawmen concerning hidden interests in Las Vegas resorts, several gangland slangs, a network of burglaries, extortions, and arson cases, sources told the Review Journal on Wednesday. He has been cooperating with federal and local law enforcement officials the past two weeks and is expected to provide information about organized crime activities from Las Vegas to Chicago, authorities said. The reason behind his switch appeared to fit the classic mold of other organized crime informants. Sources said he feared the possibility of a heavy prison sentence, believed his life was in danger from former friends, and was disgruntled about the way associates treated his family while he was jailed. An associate of reputed mob watchdog Anthony Spilatro, Collada was dubbed Far Away Frank because of his propensity to be away from the scene of a crime. After Frank agreed to cooperate, he was taken out of the county jail and moved from hotel to hotel, with a security detail of FBI agents and Las Vegas Metro detectives keeping an eye on him around the clock. 
Meanwhile, Las Vegas Metro Police began marathon debriefing sessions, trying to get as much information out of their new witness as they possibly could. According to Frank's biography, Collado, the life of a Chicago criminal, Las Vegas mobster, and government witness, Frank provided information in these initial debriefing sessions that would allow police to clear about 50 previously unsolved burglaries. From there, the FBI took Frank out of Las Vegas to do their own debriefings. Tony Spilatro's case agent, Mark Casper, was one of the agents who debriefed Frank. But as Mark would tell me, this wasn't the first time they'd crossed paths. I was on a surveillance squad for a short period of time, and I, uh, he confronted me in a, in a casino when we were following him along with some other individuals. And, and I had, he confronted me that I was an FBI agent and everything, and I had to act like I would know I'm, I don't even know what you're talking about and everything. When I did debrief Frank Collada, I asked him about that instance, and he said, yeah, I remember you. He said, he, he described it to a T, where I was, what casino I was in and everything. So I, I basically, he had a, it sort of proved to me that he had a good memory of everything that was good, that, that was going on, mm-hmm. and he, he would be valuable to us. Mm-hmm. What were those interviews like? I know that there were other agents involved too, but... It's kind of this moment where, you know, you guys have been on the opposite side of things for such a long time. Was it, you know, what's, what's kind of the atmosphere in that room as, as you're working with, with Frank Collada to, to sort of dig up all this information? And... Well, the main thing, I mean, my, for myself, I, I, when I did talk to him, I basically wanted to corroborate things that I knew and see if he could, if he could provide additional information about it. But I was also cognizant of the fact that if he was going to expound on it without, you know, I didn't want him, if he lied about anything or made up, you know, try to, con, you know, just try to get more bennies or whatever you want to call it. I wanted to make sure whatever, whatever he did know was actually was coming from him and not from something that uh, somebody else had told him. Mm-hmm. And so why do you think that at this moment he should have been trusted considering he was at this point a convicted criminal and he was staring at a likely life sentence. Why trust the information he was providing? Well, primarily because I, I know for myself and I know the other, I know one specific, the agents that didn't, Dennis Arnold, he was his main contact man. Frank Collada was was such that he had he had a great memory and and basic anything that we did use to present before the grand jury or uh, or for him to testify in court we usually we basically corroborated most most of the stuff that he told us so it's it wasn't just coming we didn't we didn't just rely on his information his information was really just to corroborate what what we already prob- we already had had known or did know Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, if if he was caught in a lie, you know, he'd lose his deal and and end up in prison where where people likely wanted him dead. So that's some incentive to tell the truth. Yeah, exactly. I will say there is. I know I've, I've talked to some some other folks about how hard he worked to corroborate all these all this information that he was providing. But even still, there are um, exchanges where it was just him and one other person that you know there's no way to corroborate. Um, no, that's correct. That's correct. And, so, and and the only way we could do that is if a lot of time we'd have to go back to previous surveillances of him or whatever, just to see if he was he was at that area or whatever that it, it, in that in that instance, we could corroborate certain certain events. 
To be clear, the government didn't have to like Frank to work with him. They just needed to be able to corroborate what he was telling them for it to be useful. And it's not like Frank Collada was some small-time loan shark or drug dealer. He was someone who'd had access to some of the top guys in the Chicago outfit for decades. And knowledge of mob activities ranging from burglaries and street rackets, all the way up to casino skimming operations at the Stardust and other casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. He would be an incredibly important witness in a multitude of ongoing investigations. Mark Casper told the Review Journal in the 90s, quote, You don't get your information from priests and preachers. I was always comfortable taking information from individuals like that as long as I could corroborate it. The government needed something, and Frank Collada was able to provide it. Once again, this is Mob Museum Vice President of Exhibits and Programs, Jeff Schumacher. And in exchange, he was only going to provide it if he got something. It's a quid pro quo. You do this, we'll do this. And it's happened many times, and it'll continue to happen, because in order to get at the bigger organization, uh, the, the, you know, the, the federal government's position is, in order to accomplish the larger goal, we've got to sacrifice a smaller individual. And so Collada came at the right time with the right message for the feds and uh, got a good deal out of it. Not, not everybody who does what he did gets quite as good a deal. So he was at, it was kind of an era when a lot of that was happening. And so you know, today, they might have said, okay, if you want to be a government witness, that's great, but we still need you to serve 15 years, and then you can get out, something like that. Uh, but in the, in the 80s, uh, he was able to get a drastically reduced term. In the summer of 1982, Frank and his attorney, at this point a public defender, reached a deal with prosecutors. Frank would be required to plead guilty to all of his pending charges, but all of the sentences would run concurrent with his sentence in the stolen property case. He was sentenced to eight years, but wound up being released on parole after just two. After another two years of probation, he would become a free man again at the age of 48. Not bad compared to the life term he was facing. But to sweeten the deal, Frank would also receive immunity for every uncharged crime he'd testified to. For starters, that included the four murders you've heard about, as well as dozens of uncharged burglaries. As for his end of the deal, Frank would have to serve as a cooperating witness, a turn of phrase that he is very particular about. I never consider myself an informant. An informant is a person that wears a wire and goes out for self-gratification to make money. It's like a frustrated cop, I call him. I was a, a witness in trials that I committed the actual robberies. I was able to testify on Tony. I didn't wear a wire. I only told what was actually happening. Of course, to Frank's old crew, it didn't really matter what Frank wanted to call himself cooperating witness, government witness, informant, it was all the same. To them, Frank would always be a rat. You'll find rats in every crew these days because that's, that seems to be the way of things going. 
This, once again, is Ernie DeVino. In an interview for a documentary titled Ernesto Ernie DeVino, The Last Stand-Up Guy, produced by Freebird Media. When the cops show up, that's when all the loyalty goes out the window. And you have to go to court and everything else. And it starts to become where, you know, you're going to go away for a long time. And that's when the loyalty disappears. That's when you find out who the real, real guys are and who aren't. That's what happened then. We went to jail. Uh, Leo Gardino and I went to jail. Every, Joe Blasco went to jail. Larry Newman went to jail. And Frank Collada went on the witness program. After agreeing to work with the government, Frank was entered into the Witness Security, or Witness Protection, program, given a completely new identity for his own protection. You have to live a different life. It's very difficult to be in a Witness Protection program. They take you away from everything you ever loved and cherished, even pets. I mean, you have to start a whole new life. And how are you going to drag your family in it, you know? So it was very, very difficult. Frank spent his first two years in the Witness Protection Program in prison. Then, once he was paroled, he was required to live in the outside world with his new identity for at least two more years. The first time I met him, I asked if he was allowed to tell me what name he went by during his time in Witness Protection. And using some pretty colorful language, he told me it was none of my business. Eventually, he clarified that he wasn't actually supposed to share that information. What we do know is that Frank was relocated somewhere in the South. And believe it or not, being an Italian-American guy with a thick Chicago accent, Frank stuck out just a little bit in his new city. So when I'm in there, I knew that I'd have to dress all together different, speak a little different, but how do you change my voice? It's impossible. Can't go to Italian Russians, because if you go to Italian Russians, everybody claims they know somebody. So you stay away. I could cook Italian anyway. So I stood away, and uh, I led a low-profile light. I wore jeans, which I never wore in my life. I wore tennis shoes, which I never wore in my life. Plaid shirts, baseball caps, and this is the way I lasted two years in the program. Starting over wasn't the only difficult thing about Frank's time in witness protection. His deal, of course, was contingent on him providing truthful, public testimony against a number of his former friends. Here's Review Journal reporter Jeff Gehrman. Collada became probably the most important witness against the mob, or at least Spalatro's organization in Las Vegas, and probably the reason why they went down. Frank's first appearance in court as a cooperating witness was at a pre-sentencing hearing for Joey the Clown Lombardo, who was reputed to be one of the top guys in the Chicago outfit by this point. Lombardo had been convicted on a bribery charge, and after Frank's testimony, he ended up being sentenced to 15 years in prison. He wound up being sent back to prison a couple more times after that, the last time being a life sentence. Joey the Clown died in prison at age 90 in October of 2019. As I mentioned on a previous episode of this series, just by chance, I happened to meet Frank for the first time about a week after that. By the way, Lewis always does my driving slash security. I don't really need a security, but he's a good friend. How, uh, how sure are you that you don't need security? 
Well, you're gonna have to, Joe Lombardo was the last one I would have had to worry about and he just died uh, last Saturday in prison. Around this time, Frank also testified in a new case against Larry Newman, one of the old Hole in the Wall gang members. Thanks to Frank, Newman had been charged with the murder of a jeweler back in Chicago. And Frank testified against Larry Newman and got Newman convicted, which was a, a blessing to get him off the streets. Blessing probably, probably several people more that are alive today because of that. These cases weren't exactly small potatoes, but of course law enforcement's big hope was that Frank would help them take down Tony Spilatro. On January 28, 1983, it looked like that might finally happen when the front page of the Review Journal displayed the headline, Spilatro charged in killings. Tony Spilatro had been indicted in Illinois for the 1962 murders of Billy McCarthy and Jimmy Moralia, the brutal torture killings you heard about on part three of this series. As you're probably guessing, the basis for Tony's indictment was grand jury testimony from his childhood friend, Frank Collada. Tony was quickly taken into custody in Clark County, Nevada, and placed in the very cell where Frank Collada had made the decision to switch sides just the year before. The Review Journal's Jane Ann Morrison wrote the following in an article published a couple weeks later. Law enforcement officials around town are gleefully referring to the Clark County Jail cell where Anthony Spilatro has been housed since January 28 as the Frank Collada Suite. Spilatro now fighting extradition to Chicago where he is charged with murdering two men in 1962 may be thinking less than fond thoughts about Collada, his boyhood chum who provided Illinois authorities with the evidence against him leading to the indictment. Collada lived in this same cell for about a month last spring after he decided to become a government informant. And it was while he was living in that particular cell, normally reserved for protected witnesses, that Collada began calling the FBI and sharing tidbits about his former friends. Perhaps the atmosphere of the Collada suite will move Spilatro to pick up the phone and call the FBI too. And then again, perhaps not. When the murder case went to trial in Chicago, Tony was acquitted. He had unexpectedly opted for a trial by judge as opposed to taking his chances with the jury. I will point out that a decade later, the judge in this case, Thomas Maloney, would end up going to prison. That judge was later... And not specifically for Tony's case, but for several cases, was convicted for being on the mob payroll. Maloney was found to have taken bribes to fix four felony cases, three of which were murder trials. Now, in fairness, Tony's case wasn't one of them. But I think it's also fair to say that the bribery conviction raises some questions about Tony's murder trial. And it certainly brought scrutiny to his decision to opt for a trial by judge. This, however, wasn't the only time Frank would testify against Tony. Once again, here's former Review Journal reporter Jane Ann Morrison, reading from an article she wrote that was published on September 15, 1983. Reputed mobster Anthony Spilatro was charged with ordering a murder and overseeing a multi-million dollar burglary ring in two federal indictments unsealed Wednesday in Las Vegas. FBI officials believe the burglary operation struck at least 200 homes or businesses in 1980 and 1981, making it the largest organized burglary enterprise in Las Vegas. Based on Frank Collada's grand jury testimony, Tony had been indicted on racketeering charges alongside 18 other defendants. This, of course, was related to the activities of the Hole in the Wall gang. 
The other charges stem from the 1979 murder of Jerry Listener, which Frank Collada testified he'd committed on orders from Tony. As a result, Tony was charged with obstructing justice and conspiring to violate the civil rights of Jerry Listener. Mark Casper, who had been the case agent for the FBI's Spilatro investigation, tells me that when he'd first met Tony at his home, years earlier, he'd warned him that someday he would be back to put him in handcuffs. I basically told him one of these days, I'm going to have to knock on the door and arrest you, come and arrest you. And, he, and I said, I'll treat you like a man. And he said, that's all I want to know. And shook my hand and I turned around and left. In October of 1983, that day finally arrived. The supervisor named me to go along with uh, Bruce Yarbrough to go make, make the arrest. And I went there with him along. I had a backup agent outside, but... Uh, I told you, know, knocked on the door. It was early in the morning. Tony was in his night, his, uh, what do you want to call it, bathrobe. And I told him, I got a warrant for his arrest. I said, I got to take, take you in. He said, well, can I call Oscar? I said, yes. Oscar being Tony's attorney. Future Las Vegas mayor, Oscar Goodman. And we went into the house and he called Oscar and then told him he said he had to get dressed. And I said, go ahead. I let him go to his own bedroom. He got dressed, came out in his suit. He had a better suit on than I did. <laughs> and uh, we went into the car. I, had, I didn't even handcuff him. We put him, we went into the car. Yeah, he was in the back seat and driving to the federal building. And as I approached the federal building, I saw where all of the uh, news people were outside waiting for my for our appearance. And I told Tony, I said, uh, I got to. I got to make this look official. I need to put the handcuffs on you. So he put his hands forward, and I put my handcuffs on him, and then uh, we proceeded. Uh, and eventually, as it was, he I handcuffed him in the front. So when I, the pictures appeared in the paper, he was uh, handcuffed in the front, and I was on his by his side along with the other agent. Those handcuffs, by the way, are now on display at the Ma Museum. Shortly after, Tony would also be indicted in a casino skimming case, but it would be another three years or so before any of these cases went to trial. Finally, in 1986, Tony stood trial for the Hole in the Wall racketeering case, alongside eight other members of the Hole in the Wall gang, including Larry Newman, Ernie DeVino, Leo Guardino, Wayne Matecki, and Joe Blasco. During the trial, longtime Nevada journalist Myron Borders ran into Tony and one of his associates, Herbie Blitzstein, out in public. She later told former Review Journal reporter Jane Ann Morrison about that night. He was on trial, and he and Herbie Blitzstein were walking outside the Coachman restaurant, which, and she was uh, going in, and she saw them, and she said, what are you guys doing out here, you know, and chit-chatted. And uh, he said something to her along the lines of, we're going to win this time. And of course, they got a hung jury. They got a hung jury. So in a way, he won. On April 8, 1986, after the trial had stretched on for more than 10 weeks and the jury had deliberated for 11 days, the judge in Tony's case declared a mistrial. A new trial date was set for June 16th, but Tony's fate was not going to be decided by the courts. Former FBI agent Mark Casper told me that he also had a run-in with Tony during his first trial. The trial was in the federal building, which is on the... We were on the second floor, and the, court, the courtrooms were on the third floor, I guess, at the time. And uh, we used the public bathrooms in the, in the office building. Uh, and as I was going to the bathroom, 
Well, Tony was coming from the cafeteria, which is in the other direction. And he came out, this was right, right towards before the trial had become, a, it ended up being a hung jury or whatever. He acknowledged my presence and reached out his hand and wanted, shook hands with me. He said, hey, hey, Mark, how you doing and everything? I said, I'm doing fine and everything. And I, I always think back to that when he reached out to me that he, I think he was trying to reach out. I, I always keep thinking that he probably was reaching out to tell me something that, uh, and didn't know how to do it. Before he could be retried, Tony Splatro disappeared. On part 10 of Mobbed Up, we track down Tony Spilatro, and the FBI winds up to strike a fatal blow on the mob in Las Vegas. Loyalty is a big word, okay? But when you get into this life, there's a lot of paranoia. And when paranoia sets in, and and criminal justification, you start justifying. You looked wrong at me. You got something on your mind, and it's a criminal justification, criminal mentality. I'm going to kill you because you looked at me wrong. This has been Part 9 of Mobbed Up, a production of the Las Vegas Review-Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. We just have two parts left, and trust me, you're not going to want to miss them. So make sure you've subscribed to Mobbed Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you've been listening to this series so far. Mobbed Up is reported and produced by me, Reed Redmond. You can track me down on Twitter, at Red Redmond, or send any comments or questions by email to rredmond at reviewjournal.com. Our sound designer and audio editor for this series is Jonathan McMichael, who also composed the theme song you're hearing right now. Other sound effects and music used in this episode are from Motion Array and Stephen Arnold Music. Additional audio clips used in this episode come from the Freebird Media documentary, Ernesto Ernie DeVino, The Last Stand-Up Guy, which you can watch in its entirety on the Freebird Media Vimeo page. Select clips heard in the intro of this episode are from the Oral History Research Center at the UNLV Library Special Collections and Archives. Thanks to everyone who shared their stories and insights on this episode. Stan Hunterton, Frank Collada, Dennis Griffin, Jane Ann Morrison, Mark Casper, Jeff Gehrman, and Jeff Schumacher from the Ma Museum, which you can learn more about by visiting themamuseum.org. You can learn more about Mobbed Up and check out some of our other podcasts by visiting reviewjournal.com backslash podcasts. As always, we'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for tuning in. 